Hello, hello again to all you Crash Podcast followers out there, new and old, young and old, modern and, well, old, you know which you are. I'm your post-COVID refreshed and rejuvenated host, Tom Termazai, consultant radiologist in Norwich and the Royal College of Radiologists 2020 Röntgen Professor, and yes, I am still stringing that one out. Now, after finding out how brilliantly Radiant has been getting on in the last episode, that's the Radiology Academic Network for trainees, go check them out. This time it's an open arms welcome back, but in a very COVID safe way, of course, to everyone, because it is not only you listeners who are returning this time. So before we go any further, if you haven't listened to the first ever episode of the podcast yet, stop right now, obviously question your life choices, then go back and listen to it. Done? Right. Well, let's get to our guests. Now, who were the intrepid pioneers appearing in that opening episode back in October 2020 and have kept their promise by agreeing to come back for a second crash experience today. First, it's Madhu Chetan, who is an SD4 in interventional radiology in Oxford and has now finished her academic clinical fellowship. That's the ACF. Now, hi, Madhu. Thanks for coming back. Hi, Tom. Wonderful to be back. Well, I must say I am slightly disappointed not to see you sporting a bowl haircut this time. <laughs> okay, and next we welcome back Jim Zong, who is hopefully still a Cancer Research UK Clinical Research Fellow doing his PhD in Leeds. Hi again, Jim, is that right? Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me back again. I think um, I am, but uh, again, hopefully I still have some funding for the next 18 months. Yeah, good stuff. And have you got any hot updates on the LA Lakers for us? Uh, unfortunately, again, they did not make the playoffs this year, mm-hmm. so there's always next season. Okay, well, and finally, it's Amy Sharkey, who is now an SD3 and in the last year of her ACF at Guys and St. Thomas's Hostel in London. Hi, Amy. It's fantastic to actually see you this time. Hey, Tom. Thanks for having me. Great. Well, look, look, we've got loads to catch up on from over the last year and a half or so. But Amy, why don't you get us started and tell us what's been going on? What have you been up to since we spoke last time? Uh, so since we spoke last time when I was in ST2 at Guy St. Thomas's Academic Clinical Fellowship, we're now one year on, unsurprisingly, now ST3. Things have been a little bit up and down because of COVID and all of the changes that it has brought into clinical practice. I'm due to finish my Academic Clinical Fellowship this year, so I have been looking for PhD opportunities. So I've just um, accepted a BRC, so Biomedical Research Centre at King's uh, Fellowship, look, doing a PhD looking at PET, like a novel PET tracer, which should hopefully be able to get, see how your treatment is working and let you switch treatment quicker. So that's my plan for the next, I'll do my 2B, my final exam in September, and hopefully start that quite soon afterwards. Oh, fantastic. Congratulations. I mean, you seem to be riding the wave of the difficulties that can occur around this time of coordinating everything. And when I listened back to the podcast just recently, I just thought, wow, there's, you know, lining up here. And, you know, I'm so glad it's 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 working out for you. That's fantastic. Uh, Maddo, why don't I come on to you and why don't you just let us know what you've been up to in the last year and a half, how things have been going for you? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm also a further year on from last time. I'm now <laughs> ST4. And um, I think the biggest change for me has been starting IR training. So my day-to-day life has changed to being in the Angie room rather than being in the reporting room, which has been fab. I also have the happy news of being post-exams, which is wonderful. Yeah, congratulations. But That's it, just such a huge thing, isn't it? That's great to get that there. It's just such a relief to have that last ever exam feeling. Um I've finished my ACF as well. Uh, that ended in uh, August last year. And I've, I've gone to becoming a full-time clinical trainee for the first time, which has taken some getting used to, doing five days a week clinically, but it's been good. 
at the moment, I don't have plans to go straight into a PhD anytime soon. I'm just kind of enjoying IR training and, and seeing where that takes me. I think that's, you know, a really interesting point that we will explore with everyone about the timing of this. Uh, we certainly touched on it last time and it's been a feature all along and something that I've been really keen to pursue. And I'd like to hear from, from you, Maddie, from all of you about that timing and what it means and when one goes into it, because there are quite specific outcome criteria that ACFs, not you personally, but the posts are judged by. And I think that is something that we need to review and have a discussion about, not just here and now, but as we move forwards so yeah thank you very much Madhu Jim please let us know what you've been up to over the last year and a half or so so first of all it's quite scary that it's been a year and a half I've mm. I'm in my PhD bubble where time clearly moves at a different pace um, in terms of progression through PhD I've going through the motions um, of that and I've done a systematic review a radio genomics project in prostate cancer which is ongoing and going through the frustrations of trying to set up a, a feasibility study as part of the PhD and in terms of other major life events I decided to move house during Covid as well so that has been an interesting thing I've done. Well you never know that might bizarrely come up um, in the next it, but uh, I won't give away too much there. Look, thanks, Jim, for the update. We're going to explore, in, obviously, in a lot more detail about, you know, what's been going on. And already I can see that there's some rich veins to pick at. But with the introductions done and out of the way, we're going to move on to that bit of the podcast where truth will out. That's right. It's time for the crash test. Now, Folks, I think it would just be far too easy to let you go through the same thing as last time. And besides the smugness level from no one having failed, their driving test last time was intolerably high, although I must admit that was mostly me. Um, so unless you've had your license withdrawn, I've had to resit your driving test, or like even we saw with Tristan Barrett, you've done it in another country. Anyone? No, no one's done that. Okay, fine. Well, we're just going to have to put the crash test grid down to one side. You're going to have to sit this one out. Sorry. Instead, I'm going to pitch you head to head. <laughs> Okay, so you're not going to have to like be shouting over each other. But what we're going to do is I've got 10 questions lined up. And the one with the highest score at the end will win. What exactly they win? I'm not exactly sure. And you might hear me scribbling furiously as I try to keep track of the scores. So okay, here we go. Right, let's have the first question. So you're gonna have to bear with me with these. You'll see a theme coming through. So number one, what's the Scrabble score for your surname? Amy, what you got? 17. 17. Okay, all right. Well, that's pretty swift work. You must know your Scrabble numbers very well. Jim, what have you got? I'm expecting something interesting from you. I've got 18, Tom. 18. Okay, Zs and Hs there coming out nicely. Madhu, how about you? What have you got? I've only got 11. It's a bit weak in comparison. Oh, that's a bit weak. Oh, well, I mean, well, what, I got 19, so shame on all of you. I mean, the Zs are very strong. But Amy, I was quite quite surprised. That's, that's also pretty strong. Well done. Good. So that's incredibly relevant to academic radiology. So let's move on to the next question. What's your highest impact factor publication? Okay. So it just roughly, you know, and you can beef it up a bit if you want. You can round up. Amy, what have you got? Actually, I have absolutely no idea, which is very unhelpful. So roughly guess, um, because, uh, you know, this is deadly serious. Four or five? Five. Okay, let's go with five. Uh, Jim, have you got any idea? And it's good that you don't know, Amy, actually. I'm going to hedge it and say six. Six. Okay. All right. Um, Maddie? Um, I also have no idea, so I'm going to okay, well, go bang in the middle at four. 
four. Okay, well, in the middle would be five and a half. So let's give you five as well. Um, I'm not going to carry on playing this game because it's just not about me. So, okay, next number three, question three. How many followers do you have on Twitter, roughly, Amy? I think I have about 200 or so. So 200. Uh, Jim? I'm going to say 800. 800. Well, there's research engagement for you. Um, And Madhu, how many have you got? (laughs) <laughs> so, uh, as we all know i don't actually have twitter so i'm gonna go with zero zero okay all right well that's not too punitive because i'm clearly not going to give people 800 points and you're just going to get that n- knocked down by um a factor of 100 so it's not too bad number four okay so you'll see the pattern here we're, we're alternating a bit what's the longest co-author list you've been on so this is where if you're in the field of genetics you are winning Amy? Uh, I think it's about 30. 30? Goodness me, what was that for? Uh, It was a vascular paper that we included the entire department on. Well, that's strong. That is very strong. Jim? Does this have to be published material? I mean, yes. I mean, what were you thinking? No, because we have got a one of these collaborative papers going through with lots of centres. Well, hopefully everyone is there. If it's been submitted, has it? Okay, it has been submitted. I'll allow that because, you know, th- that means that you're, you're almost there and you're going to find somewhere for it. And then no one's going to ask you to cut down on the numbers. What have you got? Oh, so there's about 90 on that one. 90? Yeah, you see, that's that's how it works. Yeah. OK. Wow. Uh, OK, uh, Maddie? I think something like 12. 12. Excellent. Good stuff. Let's go on to number five. And now this is Jim, where you'll see what I was talking about earlier. Take the number of siblings you have and multiply it by the number of times you've moved house in the last five years. I'm not quite sure again what I was thinking here, but I needed to beef up. It wasn't enough just to have siblings. And I thought how many times you moved house is quite a good reflection of the kind of situations we often find ourselves in, um, particularly at your stage of career and moving around. My CRBs were a nightmare until I settled down into my consultant post almost. So Amy, what's siblings and what's uh, number of times moved? I have four siblings and I've moved house three times in the last five years. Okay, very good. And Jim? I'm an only child. I've moved twice. Oh, it doesn't matter how many times you've moved then because that's a zero. <laughs> Sorry, after all of that. Uh, and Maddie? Um, I've got one sibling and I've moved house three times in the last five three. years. Isn't that so interesting? You know, two or three times having to move It is something that I don't think people appreciate for just I think doctors in general, that it is a very tumultuous time moving around and can make it very difficult to try and pursue some defined targets within your career, particularly when it comes to research. So I had hoped that would be vaguely revealing and relevant. Okay, next one, number six. How many different countries have you visited on trips related to research? Conferences, presentations, presenting your work or just meeting people? Amy? At least five that I can think of off the top of my head. I reckon if I drill down into it, I could find a few others. Okay, well, we'll give you seven in that case. Jim? I'm going to go with five as well. Okay, and Maddie? I've been to five as well. So what kind of things have these been for everyone? Have they been conferences or presenting work or what? Uh, Yeah, uh, last year I went to RSNA in Chicago. Mm. And then I've previously been around quite a lot of the like European conferences, which are generally Mm. in nice sunny places in the summer. Um, ECR in Vienna, those are the which ones is now in the sub. Uh, ECR, no, of course, now in <laughs> summer. So I have to see how that works in my calendar. Yeah, Madhu, you were going to say something. What have you been up to that way? 
Um, so, so similar to Amy, I've been to RSME um, before COVID now, um, and again, a couple of the nice European ones. Cersei's always a big favourite because it's Barcelona or Madrid and the weather's great. Mm, nice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was the idea was to get a sense of how nice it will be to be able to go back to these. I'm going to Japan. Visa is a bit tricky for that one. But um, yeah, and Jim, what kind of places have you been and why? Yeah, so again, ECR and RSNA and then the interventional radiology conferences tend to be in quite exotic places. So Lisbon, mm. um, Barcelona, Mm-mm. Copenhagen. Mm. Uh, so thankfully, due to that, I've gone to a few more. Good. Well, we're all looking forward to getting back out there and seeing everyone again from our international research communities. It's going to be lots of fun. Right. OK, number seven. This will tell me about your time as medical student. What's your highest ever three dart score, Amy? I've literally played so little darts, I don't even know what a three dart score is. OK, just just you have a set of three darts, you throw them in. Can you remember what you got? Uh, no, I don't no, even know. Fine. Like, Would it be like one point per dart? Like I've literally what? absolutely no idea. Provided you hit the board, I'll give you the average. I don't average really know if I would definitely go for like a definite hitting off the board. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's say 20 then, because that's what people would have pointed you towards. Jim, do you have anything there in terms of any hidden skills? Well, had you asked me 24 hours ago, I would have had no idea. But actually, I literally played darts yesterday evening with my friend. So <laughs> it was 56. I managed to wing that one. That's not bad. Not bad at all. I do. Are you a darts um, person? I am not a darts person. I think I'm very much in the same boat as Amy. May or may not hit the board three times. Have you ever done it? Um, no. All right. Okay, let's move on to the next question. Amy, how many times have you had a volunteer MRI research scan? How much have you given oh, back? Oh, Yeah, exactly. Uh, I thought I there might had be. probably like 50. 50? Yeah. Woo! Look at that. That's got, rocket. You also got uh, compensated for it at medical school. So it was like a many times winner. Yeah, exactly. So my scanning history that way goes back to fMRI from when I was 19. Um, (laughs) So I thought that would be a good one. Uh, Jim? I'm going to go with five. Yep. So that's slightly fewer. Um, How ungenerous with your time, Jim. Oh dear, terrible. And Madhu? Um, I'm going to go with just two. But to make up for it, I did have to inhale xenon gas for one of them. Okay, I'll tell you what. I'll give you 50 points. So hang on, what's the atomic number for xenon? Because I think that would work. Atomic number 54. Yeah, I thought it was in the 50s. And my addition is absolutely not up to scratch on that one. Okay, number nine, as we come close to the end. How many bottles of wine are there in your home right now, Amy? Oh, a lot. <laughs> um, <laughs> maybe like 100 plus. Mm-hmm. 100. Okay, that's very interesting. Well, Jim, you have to think... Can you beat that? Well, I'm in a hotel room, so I only have Austrian cola and juice, so none. But Okay, so it doesn't matter. What about at home? Because that was the idea. Maybe I thought one of you might be a wine keeper, collector, storer. Probably investor. a couple. Okay, just in the wine rack on the side. Okay. And Madhu? Um, maybe 20. 20. Yep, good. Okay. Sorry, I'm not meant, that's not meant to be a shameful revealing for anyone. I don't... <laughs> right, last question. How many grant or fellowship or funding rejections have you ever had? So it's a little bit of a downer and there might be one less bottle of wine in the house by the end of tonight. But I thought that's a fair question given, you know, it should be a lot. The more that you do and the more you get involved, the more this will happen. So Amy? Two. Two. Okay, Jim. I'm going to go with five again. I think it's the magic number today. And Madhu, how about you? Um, I'm going to go with zero, but only from lack of trying. 
Oh, okay, no, fair enough. Right, well, there we go. That is the end of the questions. Does anyone have want to guess who's won this one by by points? It was quite interesting there. I'm afraid, I mean, I think we know that Madhu was a little bit back there because of the Twitter. That was a bit of a problem. But who do you think won? Jim, I'd say. Well, Jim was ahead for almost half of that. But then your 100 bottles of wine... <laughs> Amy put you right out in front so congratulations kudos to you Amy well done both of you thank you so much all of you for taking part again in the crash test head to head All right, so let's get on with the main meat of the podcast. There's been lots going on and, you know, thanks for your introductions, getting us up to speed with what you've been doing, how life has been going. But clearly, and I think, Amy, you mentioned this straight up, COVID's been a big thing and we're only really starting to get back all together, meeting up. How did you manage that sort of exit, Amy, from all those restrictions? And what kind of impact was it having on your research plans? And how did you come out of that in terms of time that you got back or the time that you lost? I'm not entirely sure I have managed to manage it that well or to manage to get out of it. I feel like there's still quite a lot of backlog and delay. Um, I feel like my training program has been really good at honouring a lot of the research time throughout it, but a lot of our other resource was directed, like all trials were paused while we did COVID trials. I think it was just like a fundamentally difficult time and I don't think that I have really caught up with it yet I think that there's probably still some ongoing delays in doing things that so there's probably like a delay to some publications that will come out until next year where it's actually they really should have been here and I suppose like that's just the way it is I don't really think there's anything more or less that I could have done about it because I think everything was just beyond our control. Yeah, and was this to do with things like patient recruitment or availability of researchers and facilities? Yeah, like uh, the research and nurses all moved to COVID trials. We weren't allowed to recruit mm. anything that wasn't a COVID trial, which for us, we didn't actually do. In I mean, what my department basically does is AI and cancer imaging, which is not yeah. super COVID related. Yeah, thanks very much, um, Amy. Jim, same for you. How has, you know, the COVID, and I got a sense that, you know, for example, doing the systematic review, that's something that can take up a bit of time. That's quite useful to be able to be, be doing that. But what kind of challenges did you face as you were taking it and um, stepping into your PhD and getting it going? Yeah, because I started in September 2020. And then the second lockdown happened shortly after that, I felt I didn't really see anyone for about four months. And then, um, I was trying to do my systematic review at the time, which was in prostate radiotherapy. So that was a different ball game, just you know, not skilling up in, in that area. But then when I started to try and set up the uh, prospective study, it also felt like because everyone was at home and busy with COVID related things, that things were a bit slower to um, you know, go through the motions. So I do feel that things haven't been maybe as efficient as they were pre-COVID. Obviously, imaging is stretched capacity-wise as well. So that's another issue. So with the feasibility study that you told us, I mean, did you, you're recruiting patients and scanning them? or And were you, as a second part to that question, tempted to look at another avenue to be able to get on and, and, and accelerate? So for example, more data-based approach. Yeah, so um, the feasibility study initially was looking at two different types of radiotherapy for recurrent prostate cancer. And because obviously me being a radiologist, I was interested in adding in an imaging component, but we were initially just going through 
the ethical approval. So it was completing all the documentation for that, which I not done before. So I think I was a bit slow at understanding the endless forms I had to complete to actually get that up and running. So that hasn't actually started yet. We haven't even recruited our first patient to that because it's waiting for the local sites to approve the study. So again, I didn't realize how long these, these things do take. Yeah, it's really tricky how this impacts. And I, I'm trying to think back and I, I think, you know, things like the recovery trial, which is the big COVID one was still going on. And I think just perhaps it was the year, almost a year after it was summer 2021, where we were allowed to start to re-recruit and, and had studies coming in that weren't COVID related. So Madhu, um, for yourself, that's an interesting transition time. How were your research projects affected? And then did you close them off or were they handed over? And then how did it affect the clinical research? So my research projects were delayed a bit like everyone else's experiences. So um, I was trying to get a what seems now very straightforward study off the ground just using kind of existing imaging data. But getting that through the research ethics committee, I think, was really badly timed as kind of having gone in just before the first lockdown. So there was about a 12 month delay, I think, between kind of submitting it and then actually being able to start a non-COVID related study. Um, it's all up and running now, which is brilliant. But um, I think the struggle now is the kind of lack of academic time with which to kind of keep it rolling. Um, there's um, another project that I've been involved with. That's um, that's a clinical trial that uh, luckily one of my colleagues who's a PhD has kind of set it all up and I'm just helping out with them um, with some of the scans for that um, and it's been brilliant getting our first patient recruited kind of only just in the last couple of months but again it's been a really long time coming and um, it's great to see things starting now um, but I do feel like the last kind of year and a half of the ACF wasn't as used kind of as efficiently as it could have been but there's nothing you can do about it it's just one of those things and it's the same for everyone. Do you think that impacted on your decision of what to do immediately out the other side of your ACF? Because I know actually, again, listening back, you always had a very clear notion that you were going to go back to clinical straight away. So did did that experience in any way colour what you were feeling? I think it did, yeah. So um, I had a chat with a few people about possible PhD options straight out of the ACF, but I think I knew from before that I definitely wanted to get my exams out of the way and just get a bit of a clearer idea of um, some specialty training and kind of where I was headed in the long term before um, pinning myself down to a PhD. Um, and I think the kind of general feeling of, am I really getting anywhere, definitely pushed me towards um, kind of not making any other, any further PhD plans at the time. Um, so yeah, def definitely a contributing factor there. I think it's important to ask you about how the way COVID played through departments affected your exam preparations and how they went. And Amy, I'll come on and ask you that in, in a second as well. So how was that experience for you, Madhu? Um, it was it was actually surprisingly really good. Um, so all of our exams, well, at least survivors have moved to being completely online. So you, you don't really see your examiners in person. So actually doing all of the preparation the same way is quite <laughs> helpful. It was surprisingly fine and um, you can attend more sessions when they're virtual as well. So um, I thought my department were fantastic at putting on lots of kind of revision sessions. I really should know this. So you do did you do your vivas online so you don't go down to the bowels of 
the college and just basically get scared witless by actually very nice examiners because <laughs> of course the pressure of the situation gets to your head and then get made to sit in a room afterwards and hear about how brilliantly everyone else did that that's not how it works anymore yeah so instead of that you go to a driving test center where you've got your two examiners on a screen in front of you and then you go through some like technical difficulties and then you finally start <laughs> yeah okay fine I mean I had to come up and have the fantastic Owen Arthurs and Ed Godfrey and Ed won the gold medal and I was sitting there going oh my god did I do the same long cases as these guys it turned out okay thankfully um, Amy your experiences with the exams different stage how was that for you with the COVID interruptions uh, yeah I did my 2A this uh, November time uh, for us, it wasn't terrible COVID-wise because it was sort of late enough on that everyone had kind of come to terms a bit with like how COVID was and had moved, transitioned a bit to like an online teaching aid platform. And TA, I suppose, is less, it's not practical, it's theoretical, so you can do it a lot yourself. So for us, it wasn't like a major disruption either, similar to what Maddie says, once everything, kind of everyone had gotten used to online anyway, so it was kind of fine. Yeah, yeah, I think by that time, everyone had woken up to the power and the sensibility of doing it in that way. Well, good luck in the next step. That's uh, the next big hurdle for you, I think, in that environment. Okay, so just thinking back, and then again, a little bit more of a retrospective, what have been the biggest highlights, or maybe lowlights, Amy? over the last year and a half? I mean, I don't want to be too, you know, I'm emotional about it, but you know, from, from a work perspective? Uh, there's been some nice highlights, I would say. I've, um, I was involved with RSNA with the radiology and training. I was one of the associate editors and had a really good mentor based in uh, San, uh, California. And I did some nice paper reviews with them and met like a nice group of international people that were doing the same. We all met at RSNA this year. So that was really good. And really, it was like the first post-COVID work thing that I've been on, which was a highlight. Um, I suppose the lowlights are going to be the same as everyone's. It's just been like absolutely giant backlog, difficulty with trials and getting people recruited or even getting any information through. Mm. Mm. Um, but I suppose like an uh, highlight of that was we did um, an interesting PET MRI paper that then, because we weren't recruiting any, anyone, we had time to like go through it and publish it. And then I have going to do a pet based project based on the back of that. So it's been mm. Although there's been lowlights, it's been, I think there's been like some nice opportunities yeah. among the wasteland. Yeah, I think it's very much like that. Uh, Jim, same same for you. Up, ups, downs, highs, lows. Yeah, so one of the ups was definitely um, some of the initiatives we started up through the BSIR trainees committee that I worked on with um, Madhu because we were working remotely. So we set up some monthly virtual journal clubs to try and raise the profile of um, IR and also showcase some of the exciting uh, new papers in the different innovative areas, new treatments. And then we also set up something called Unite, which is an IR trainee research network, similar to Radiant. And we completed our first multi-center audit through that, which was nice to see people still able to engage with that despite being super busy with COVID. So that was nice. So we've got things going through that at the moment and also obviously now seeing people face to face at more um, meetings is really a massive plus and then lows some of the tricky aspects of setting up studies during the pandemic and obviously having lots of colleagues off and um, just you know managing the, the usual stresses with that but I think it's definitely helped me become a much more zen person 
dealing with all those things. So maybe not a bad thing. And the BSIR trainees, is that IR juniors? Yeah, so um, it's, it's separate to IR juniors. IR juniors is a group focused more around promoting the specialty amongst pre-radiology trainees, so medical right. students and foundation doctors. But we now work very closely with that organisation. Um, so we do lots of joint activities. So yes. there's a national um, sort of IR day that the IR juniors team organise and the BSIR support that. So in, in the future, it will work much more collaboratively. Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, that's the thing that I'm starting to learn is that reaching deeper in the roots through um, trainees, academic foundation and foundation program and into medical school is absolutely key. And I really hope that we can find strategies to to do that and, you know, really bring people in to this fantastic experience that is radiology and the research that goes with it. Madhu, highlights um, and lowlights. You would like to share what kind of things that have been going through your world? Um highlights for me have been kind of um with the post-covid actually getting studies off the ground it's it's just been really satisfying so that's been the biggest highlight and then lowlights i think this is probably the same story everywhere across the country it's just um uh all the being pinged and self-isolation and having to kind of cover lots of shifts last minute um has been a bit kind of taxing over the last um few months and um, i've also had the pleasure maybe not pleasure or fair of being the kind of managerial um rotor person at work while all of this has been going on so uh so yeah that's that's not been great but things are getting better now yeah yeah well that's (laughs) that comes to us all that rotor position yeah not enviable but it it is good experience i guess yeah well look thanks ever so much for all of you for sharing those sometimes not easy when you think back of all the things that we've had to try and lift ourselves through and the clinical challenges as well they definitely still hang around for us So, Amy, let's um, come back to you. I'm going to start focusing a little bit more about specific research things. Just in general, you know, going back however long as you want, what's been your most eye-opening research experience or event so far when you think, ah, I really understood something or this has opened a path for me to pursue? What kind of episode have you had where it's been, you know, really sort of revelatory? Uh, Probably the most revelatory episode that I've ever had is I was... um... I did the academic foundation program as an academic, sur- the academic surgery stream for foundation program, thinking I would be a surgeon. And I was at the um, BSET conference, the British Society of Endovascular Therapy. And they were having this giant debate among the room as to like the benefits of open versus like EVAR procedures with like them just coming out on the side of like, we're pretty much gonna look to do a lot of this work endovascularly and then having this big discussion about like the ownership of the work versus vascular surgery and IR and that was probably the first time that I was like hmm maybe I'm on the wrong side of this fence Mm -hmm. and that's kind of like where I became interested in radiology from I think like a bit of what we were saying earlier like I don't think that it's radiology or IR is like particularly well sold to medical students or to juniors and I think unless you have that sort of experience or you know someone that's done it or like you happen to be pushed in one direction by a, a mentor or something like that I don't think it's like um comes across as like the most straightforward choice to take yeah and so you 
are you sort of still you talked a little bit about interventional radiology mm. last time are you still that way inclined because you know you're going to have your exams and then phd um and i know it was was it oncological intervention that you were interested in is that still very much part of what you want to do yeah it is something that i would really like to do i think i don't think i'll do the um formal ir training program because i think to do the phd and then come back and do ir i think it's too hard to be or at least for what I deem to want to maintain in the rest of my life I think it's very hard to be really good at IR and also really good at yeah. research unless you like narrow your scope quite a lot mm. which I'm sure Jim can probably talk a bit more about someone that's actually done it but for someone that I was like there's a lot of other things that I want to protect time-wise and I thought yeah. that was going to be really hard to do so I think what I'll do is um if it all works out hopefully is do PhD and then nuke med and like maybe oncology with one of the fellowships that has like a bit of a more interventional drive to it post CCT. Yeah, I was going to take the eye-opening question around, but you've actually hit on something that we should discuss. This is the it, relationship between intervention and how you keep your skills up. Madhu, you have made a very strong case and argument for the fact that you need to focus on those. Can you tell us about what you see ahead for yourself with your IR training and why it is so important to really get deeply involved and ingrained in that? Yeah, so... Um... I'm currently in SC4, so I've got um, two years and three or four months left of my IR training before I CCT. And I think really what's hit me the most over this um, last year in SC4 is just how important it is to do the same thing every day in order to feel like your skills are progressing and you're getting better and you're moving towards kind of becoming um, more and more independent in that technique. And I think one of the things that attracted me the most to IR initially was the variety and not just kind of within IR but also having that balance between intervention and reporting in your kind of long-term life as a consultant but obviously the flip side of that variety is that there's lots of things to kind of get your skills up in and I do know and probably Jim might be able to help me with this one but I don't know whether as you get kind of more and more senior and and do more and more of, of, of these procedures whether that kind of feeling of, you know, am I going to get de-skilled, whether that goes away and whether everything just becomes like riding a bike. I'm not really sure. Um, I certainly haven't reached that point yet. So why don't we ask Jim, because you were ST5, weren't you, when you finished your ACF and went and moved into the PhD. So were those two years enough to really get those base skills in place? I think the short answer is definitely no. But mm-hmm. that was partly because I started my ACF at ST3. So the research time ate into the IR training time. And then COVID also happened. And there was a block where I, of probably about four or five months where I wasn't doing any procedural IR. It was mainly diagnostic provision during COVID. So I've had the same thoughts, concerns, worries as Amy and Madhu have alluded to. And I I think when you look around the country with the IRs who do research, you have people who um, provide a very wide-ranging IR practice, vascular and non-vascular and oncological, and then others who perhaps are more practicing a more niche area of IR where they maybe focus on the interventional oncology side. So the non-vascular radiologists do a lot of the intervention and uh, it may be a a different skill set to maintain and therefore that may allow you to have the capacity to do something else like research. I think one of the 
difficulties I had was how I would maintain both vascular and non-vascular with the ever-changing field that is IR with newer procedures coming in every, you know, so often to then have a, re a robust research career with time during the week to actually do that. And my worry was I would feel uh, low in confidence at being able to deliver a comprehensive you know, IR on call. But maybe that, again, comes with experience, as, as Madhu says. Mm. Um, mm. And I, I guess I looked further afield to see what, in places like the US, how IRs manage their clinical academic careers there. And I think they do it better, perhaps, of the infrastructure for their training in terms of integrating research into their training and obviously there are lots of people going into radiology there who have done an MD PhD program who perhaps have those research skills at an earlier stage but then what is provided in the US for a, a general interventional radiologist scope wise is also different because in the UK I think generally we do a lot more um, peripheral arterial and aortic intervention with a lot which a lot of US centers don't have to provide so maybe they don't need to do as much of that mm. and then they have mm. more time to do the research so again it's tricky to extrapolate that to the UK so I mean there are some interesting issues here and you know we will be exploring hopefully in a future episode about the differences in international setups and how research is integrated into clinical time so that'll be in a future episode <laughs> It does seem there's a little bit of a dour kind of outlook there about what you you feel about uh, interventional radiology and how research might be able to be integrated with it. And Amy, when you look ahead, have you thought about what kind of time you might ask for to keep your clinical skills up whilst you're in your PhD? Uh, it's a question that's currently very live. Um, so, and it's also not really entirely based on what I would ideally like, because it's a bit like the needs of the department and the needs of the funder. It hasn't, I thought it would be a bit more like the question that you asked me, like, or oh, what do you think would be the best thing for you? But it doesn't, I mean, it's still very much in the process of being worked out. But what I would ideally have liked is to do like at least 25% clinical, but I don't know how it will exactly work out mm. and obviously mm. if you do that then it's less than 50 percent, which i don't think counts for any training time so i don't really know if it's better just to take time out and then come back full time and then just really, really start go for it again. Yeah. yeah yeah yeah, or yeah. I, I don't really know if it's worth it to do like one ct and one mr like mr spinalist like i don't know if that's worth it to do it for mm. the amount of time mm. that you'll lose from other things and i don't know whether or not it's better to stay on the on-call rotor or it's better to go off it i, I honestly don't know no one else from my um, department has done a PhD at this stage yet. So there's no sort of roadmap to follow. So I yeah. guess I'll just have to start and then see how it is and retrospectively change it to whatever I think will be the best thing to do at, at, yeah. at that juncture. Yeah, you really are diving in head first. It's very, you know, it's be a very interesting experience. Jim, just give us a brief summary of the time that you spend during your PhD keeping your skills up. Yeah, so I, I'm not on an on-call rotor because I felt that would give me a bit more flexibility if I was going to be away or working um, at a different institution. Because of my funding stream through Cancer Research UK, I actually work between Leeds and Manchester. So um, I thought that would give me greater flexibility. In terms of clinical sessions, um, again, I don't do any vascular intervention at the moment. The only clinical sessions I do are around 
um, prostate work. So I do a fortnightly prostate biopsy list to keep my hand in some intervention. And I uh, justify it by you know doing something that's related, I guess, to the organ system that I'm doing my PhD in. And then I do uh, some diagnostic reporting. And really over the last 18 months, because of COVID, I've um, been able to cover some of the CT and diagnostic on call. Mm. So through mm. that, I've kept a hand in it at times as well, but maintaining, I guess, the flexibility without a weekly list to to um you know that your name is attached to but it might yeah. be trickier to get out of if you're you know working away that week yeah so for, for my phd which i started although i i, I perhaps more accurately I, I did a master's first uh, and that was in the after the end of year five i spent one session a week alternating between ultrasound mri um in, in musculoskeletal so i i was kind of obviously not post fellowship but i was in a situation where i could just about plateau and hold on all the way through and then i then um i sort of with maybe a couple of months to go to the end of the phd i said i, I need every waking moment to write up but i felt that was really really important important to do now i think i remember asking a question um way back about the most eye-opening research experience so far and we got quite rightly sidetracked on a really important topic madhu can i ask what that kind of experience was or has been for you that thing that really you know perhaps changed the way that you saw research or made you make decisions that took you one way compared to another I think during my ACF one of the kind of most eye-opening experiences I've had was um working with an AI company um on a, a project on lung nodules and I think I went into it kind of knowing very little about AI but knowing that look this is kind of next big thing in radiology and it's something that I do need to know about because we do a lot of it at our centre and um, it was it was just really interesting because um, it was fantastic to work with scientists who had a completely different perspective on it than us and also realising um, how much as a doctor you can bring to that process because I think before that I had the preconceptions that you know as someone who um can't do the hardcore coding I, I might not be kind of best placed to help inform this process um but um it was it, yeah it was just really eye-opening to see um how much you you can add to the interpretation of of whatever is going on um just as adoption I think those meetings um were probably one of the most eye-opening experiences that I've had and it's just kind of really given me the skills as well to look at all of these AI papers etc that are coming out now and just have a bit more of an understanding of um, what's going on. Yeah we need more people with that experience and with that intrigue. Was that really part of a, a multidisciplinary setup Madhu where you, know, you had AI scientists and data scientists and the like as part of the research team? Yeah so AI scientists, data scientists and then a few clinical radiologists and um, the, the kind of aim of the project was um, we had this algorithm that kind of characterizes lung nodules as benign or malignant and we wanted to work out um, how it does it. So we removed lots of features from the CT scan. So for example, changing the margins to becoming smooth rather than speculated and just saw kind of what difference that made to the performance of the algorithm with the idea being that you can explain what's going on within the black box. Um, so, so yeah, very multidisciplinary and um, yeah, re really one of the kind of best projects I've been involved in. Uh, Jim, can I ask you the same question about that eye opener? And I don't mean that first drink of the morning. <laughs> Sorry. 
Yeah, so this probably was very recently, as recent as last week, because we had a an event which I attended organised by the West Yorkshire um, Clinical Academic Team, which is a bit like an away day for ACF's clinical fellows, um, but also established academics, professors, but across all specialties. And it was here that I realised um, that everyone go, is going through and has gone through a similar um, or similar emotions and feelings over the last 18 months. Because one of the biggest things that I felt um, a bit stressed about when I started was not knowing how quickly I should be doing things. You're setting your own deadlines, working very independently. And there was a lot of dealing with uncertainty. And I was quite anxious about that because I had no barometer to really tell me if I was doing the right thing. And then at this meeting, it was a bit like therapy for me, I guess, hearing all these stories that it's okay that everyone else is going through the same thoughts. So um, it was you know, very inspiring hearing about some of the other journeys that people have been on, mentioning how things are never like a straight path. You always go a very long convoluted way and everyone mm. does their own thing yes. through their sort of clinical academic journey and about learning to take uh, and deal with setbacks. I think we get better at that, the more setbacks we have to encounter. So it's very, very enlightening to, to be in that environment and realize those things. I think universities and research centers are, are alive to that. And if you are thinking about a career in research, this is to just listeners in, in general, it is worth seeking out those kinds of events where you get to meet and hear people talk about those challenges and what their life has been like in in research you know whether they're Nobel Prize winners or if they're just in a particular field that you're interested in and they are really informative and I think they are really valuable as you say Jim. Let's just dive down a little bit into the research with a little bit more technical detail, because what I think is brilliant about the stage of career that you're at with your research and clinical experiences is that you're, you're always going to be encountering new things. And I, what I'm understanding is I'm still encountering new things, both in research and clinical. But Jim, if I just come back to you, without obviously nitty gritty, tell me about a research technique that you've picked up in the last year, something new that has been added to your armory. Yeah, so the current project I'm working on is looking at a cohort of patients who have prostate cancer, who have the usual clinical pathological data, but they have some genomic uh, data as well. Um, they've all had radiotherapy and clinical outcomes after that. And I'm looking at their MRI imaging to see if there are imaging features that can be used to predict a clinical outcome or even a, a gene signature. So it's a bit like data um, analytics and delving into you know, predictive modeling. So the main package I use for that is Python. But the problem is I've never coded in my entire life. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> Thankfully, there is a very uh, friendly online community. And um, in Leeds locally, we have an excellent um, PhD fellow called Russell Froude, who is a bit of a yeah. coding genius. Yeah, friend, I think friend he's of the podcast. A, yes, yes, he has. Friend of yeah. the podcast. And Russell is fantastic at um, helping people around him, particularly other radiology trainees, and getting up, up and running with their Python skills. Um, so that has been a, the biggest challenge, but also the thing that I've been slowly trying to uh, develop a skill set in, so the coding area and developing yeah. these models. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, well, I mean, that's quite similar to my experiences. I'm just going to show for the listeners, I'm holding up um, a little orange Snoopy toy that I've had since before I can remember. He's one of my favorite little um, cuddlies, except he's not a cuddly anymore. He's someone that I talk to and I've talked about the rubber ducky before. But um, when it comes to coding, always ask your little Snoopy or whoever you have first before you go and bother someone else with your tiresome. Why isn't this work? Ah, oh, there it is. There's that monkey. So th this is Maurice the monkey and um, Maurice <laughs> sits and listens to my coding frustrations. Right. Well, you're in the community. Well done, uh, Jim. <laughs> <That's it. laughs> and I, uh, I'll tell you what, Snoopy, and I think you'll know Maurice knows pretty much 90% of the answers. Then you can go and bother someone else. Madhu, what's been something for you over the last year that has been a research skill that you've added to your the, the gamut of things that you've been building so um about six months ago i did a week-long course on statistics and it was as part of a postgrad diploma that we get to do as part of the acf and it was honestly and i never thought i was going to say this one of the most useful things i've ever done in my life um, yeah. yeah yeah i it was just brilliant and now i can kind of go and use sbss or r or whatever to kind of answer the questions I want answering and um, when you're doing smaller projects it gives you so much freedom and flexibility when you can do that yourself. Absolutely that's completely right and I think people who would like to have that really rewarding research experience and taking ownership do need to engage with one of those things. I mean, R and SPSS, I mean, you're using an interface, like, I mean, MATLAB's not proper coding, you know, you're using a scripting and you're understanding the way that works. I say MATLAB because I use MATLAB and do all my work in MATLAB from the visualization to the analysis, but I'm starting to understand that if the package isn't there, I'm going to have to go and use a new package to do these kinds of things. But I really would encourage people to embrace this. So, and I think people anyway have some really fantastic skills in these areas like HTML or Java for their own personal projects. Um, if, and I think that's much more common these days. I remember back in the 80s or late 80s doing a little bit of BBC programming as part of the school initiatives back then and, you know, enjoyed it and found myself doing lots of it now. But you make you make really good point. It's fascinating to hear that both of you have that. Amy, what about yourself? Over the last year or maybe a couple of years, I've become quite well interested in value-based healthcare. And I went to this really um, good course, which I'd recommend to any of the um, listeners if you're interested. You can do a, it's a week-long course at Harvard Business School looking at value-based healthcare, which takes like, um, you don't have to be a doctor, like you have to be within this sort of field of medicine, but it has quite a lot of people that do like consulting and finance sort of like with a healthcare kind of focus. Um, and it's international, so it's from all over the world. And you talk about like how different institutions run their like value differently. Um, and I became a bit interested in this. I did the, um, I probably mentioned it on the last podcast, I did the medical, national medical director's clinical right. fellow scheme. Yes. And I became a bit, I did um, some work looking at the coding for the RCR, looking at like where departments are like potentially missing income that they could have, which is kind of how I became involved with it. And then I did this course and I think it's been like really interesting. And there's not a lot of people doing it particularly in radiology where I think there's like a big scope for your department to run better or worse based on like how much effort is put into this so I think it's really interesting but and also a bit of a niche one yeah I mean 
I always take the time to remind, remind when I speak to the trainees about research, when I grab hold of them in the first year, that that is a really important element of research as well. You know, the business and the cost and the, the, how we actually run our healthcare systems. And, I, you know, wouldn't you know, I positively encourage people to consider something, for example, like an MBA as something that they should be thinking of as part of a research life and what they would then, you know, go on to use those experiences for. So that's really fascinating to hear. Thanks, Amy. Coming towards the end of the episode here, we're not quite there yet because since I've got you guys back again, I really wanted to push you to sort of think about how you might entice and engage other people to take a similar path to which you have all done. So Madhu, can I ask you, what kind of advice would you give to medical students and, and foundation doctors? And we did talk about, we have to reach further and further back. What advice would you give to them about wanting to do research in their radiology training? I mean, first of all, I would say absolutely go for it. There's there's so much experience and learning to be had from doing it. And it definitely is a really good um, kind of counterfoil to clinical work. Um, so that would be my first bit of advice. But then in terms of kind of the actual nitty gritty, I would say if if you are interested in research to apply for an ACF post, I think it's wonderful to have that protected academic time and the resources and the funding um, but even if you're not in an ACF post, I think there's still plenty of opportunities out there in, in departments around the country um, to get involved. And then I think the final thing I would say is that just make sure you're making the right decision for your um, clinical training and your exams at that stage of your training. Um, and sometimes it, it means that, you know, you shouldn't be afraid to say no to an opportunity if something else is having to take priority at that time. Yeah, and I'm going to ride on the back of those really insightful answers and say, talk to people whilst you're having that journey. Talk to your training program director, talk to your supervisors, talk to your research supervisors and mentors as well um, to help you in that journey. Uh, Jim, can I ask you similarly, what would you say to people before they are thinking about radiology training to entice them and say how great research is or not? Yeah, I think one of the things I would say is speak to research active clinicians and get involved with research because um, my early research experiences were not in radiology and those experiences were before I knew I wanted to be a radiologist but if you can see a bit of yourself in them and they become mentors they will provide invaluable career advice for you and it doesn't have to be someone from I think within the specialty you'll then know once you do a research project whether I think that's for you or not whether that really you know sets the sets the fire light and you know yeah. you just want to do more and do more different projects and then with people who are sort of transitioning into radiology again just speak to trainees and uh, consultants who are interested in research and get involved they're always looking for people to help them uh, with projects and I think the more people involved the better and hopefully now with um, you know just like this podcast and through the RCR initiatives through through them, it's getting the word is getting out about how exciting a lot of radiology and IR related research is. Yeah, uh, thanks, Jim. Amy, the same question to you. What would you be putting out there to these young and green individuals that we need to entice into our specialty and into research? Yeah, I mean, I totally echo everything that um, Maria and Jim have said. I think it's like as a speciality, it's quite different from other specialities. And I think that if you've done your foundation program and like thought that it's maybe not 100% everything you've ever been looking for in your life, it's quite like a different 
career trajectory without having to move away from medicine. And I think that that's really nice in terms of what it offers. And in terms of research, I think actually like historically radiology research hasn't been fantastic, but I think that it's now like becoming more of a speciality in itself. And there's a lot of people around that are like young and interested and very keen to get more people involved. And the only other thing that I would add from what Madhu and um, Jim said is if you, I do think doing the ACS has been amazing. It's been like so good to have protected time on like a regular basis to do research. It's been so useful for me, but you don't actually have to apply for it as an ST1. You can like do radiology ST1 and then come in as an ST2, yes. which I presume will be relevant to some of the people that might listen to this podcast. Absolutely. Yeah, there isn't. I mean, I think you can't push it beyond ST3 or as an entry point, but yeah, absolutely. It, it doesn't have to be. And as Matthew absolutely said, it, also, it doesn't have to be the way that, that you go. And there are many different ways to gain really invaluable research experiences. Right. So look, thanks ever so much, folks. I'm going to ask one more question of you. Now, what last time as we came towards the end, I asked you where I, you thought you're going to be in 10 years time. I'm not going to ask you that because one and a half years <laughs> is nothing really in the terms of the spanning of a decade. But I am going to put you a little bit on the spot about your ACF experiences and I'm going to return to the theme of clinical radiology academic speaking honestly and I'll start with you Madhu what do you think really could be done to shake up how training and the ACF works together because we have definitely identified today not I suppose problems but things that just don't quite sit right for radiology timings of exams when you might do a higher degree what do you think could be something that could shake this all up to make it a well, I say better experience more streamlined experience more successful experience I think what could make it a better fit for radiology would be to have more flexibility over the academic time so at the moment you have to have all your ACF time over three years and it's kind of 25% of the time and I think a lot of people have that as a day a week for three years but imagine a training program where you could have those approximately 200 days but spread out throughout your entire five or six years of training kind of as and when you need them but equally not having them in the run-up to your exams or not having them when you're in an important clinical block I think I think that would give you a lot more flexibility and maybe work a bit better with the differences um, that we see in radiology training versus some of the other specialties. Mado I'm coming around to yours and I'm wheeling you off to the NIHR tomorrow to tell them that. <laughs> Yes, make me the boss of ACF from now on. That'd be grand. <laughs> I've been racking my brains to try and think, and I agree with you 100%. Jim, tough act to follow, but what would you say? Very tough act to follow. I think, as you know, I came out of programme very late on in training, mm. and it does limit some of your post-PhD options in terms of um, you know, academic clinical fellow uh, lectureships. So a good opportunity or good time point maybe to come out of training is much earlier, perhaps after year one, because then you're still got a bit of time left when you come back to skill up for your two A and two Bs. But then how do you front load all that academic time? Because you want to, you don't want to waste that ACF research time. And I think um, with our exam structures, that's just something that we will have to figure out. And maybe the the training may change, the exam structures may change in the future to optimize research pathways through the specialty. And then the other thing, locally, it would be ideal if just there were more different types of radiology research projects available. One of the interesting things with this little group is that uh, Madhu and Amy and I were all interested in um, interventional radiology. But I'm sure we've all experienced at times there are 
less opportunities for research in, in IR compared to some of the other subspecialties. And whether this is something that the college can develop, like a, a hub of national IR or subspecialty experts that we can get advice from to help develop those research projects and even look for potential supervisors for higher degrees. That would also be a great resource. Well, I'm going to get in trouble with the production team, but I'd like to come around to yours tomorrow and will you round to the RCR and tell them how we should set up our mentorship map, which already does exist. Yeah, and we've, we've been updating that, but that kind of thing, projects and mentorship and who's in my area, breaking down the geographical boundaries that we've seen already smashed by how we've handled ourselves through COVID. Amy, what about your thoughts on this? Yeah, I totally echo the time not really working for radiology. I think that if your ACF period was, lasted four years it would be so much better because for the radiology the first few years are so intensive the exams it's very hard to get like a nice balance of like not using your academic time at a time that doesn't suit and being able to use it when it does suit and I think what also would be extremely useful if they were to consider it would be to take away some of the barriers to when you can have time out so at the moment whenever I've been going through this process you need to have done and passed your 2A but not yet been into ST5 which then leaves you actually a very narrow window to like sort out funding, which has like a big lag time to try and sort out within that little window. So I think we could make it a lot more flexible than it is at the moment. I guess one of the challenges is to say, well, you're doing an ACF and you're supposed to have that time to get ready for a PhD and not everyone will do one or has to do one. So you'd say, well, okay, well, we'll target you up for year five. I think Jim's idea at year one was very interesting, actually. And perhaps being able to say, well, go into it now and then you can actually do those fundamentals of radiology and you're not losing anything. You're always gaining. Thanks, Amy. That's a fantastic insight from you and from all of you. So I think that brings us nicely to the end of this episode it's been an enormous pleasure to talk with you all again amy jim and madhu i'm really grateful for you to coming back to speak to us best of luck in and i hope that if we're still crashing along in a few years time we're going to get you back on again guys it would be a pleasure thanks tom yeah absolutely thank you tom look forward to it tom thank you now great so i've tied you in again for another repeat appearance now i'm i'm looking forward to that already and well done on winning the head-to-head amy yeah, we'll have to get some kind of trophy over to you in the post. So a um, huge thanks, as always, go out to Charlotte McKeown and the Royal College of Radiologists events team and the college itself for continuing to support the podcast. And of course, thanks to Sue Mercer for her invaluable sound editing. As usual, show notes will be available at the RCR website. And if you have any questions about what we have discussed today or any other matters related to the Crash podcast, then you can email them to conf at rcr.ac.uk. That's C-O-N-F at rcr.ac.uk. Or you can find me on Twitter with a handle at Tom Termazite. Let me know about your ideas and views and what we have been getting up to, including guests we have heard from, guests you'd like to hear from, and any questions you'd like me to ask them, crash test or otherwise. And as usual, our reminder goes out about Radiant. You can find out more about them at www.radiantuk.com. More information, what they're up to, the plans for the future. Now, there's a place for everyone in their setup. So no matter what career position or stage you are, find out how you can get yourself and your training scheme involved in their expanding research and mentorship programs. If you've enjoyed this episode, give us some likes and leave some honest reviews and subscribe. I've been your host, Tom Termazai. Until next time, stay safe. Thank you.